Good afternoon. How many of you thought I'd say morning? It's taken a lot of intentional thought every time to say good afternoon. Merry Christmas. Better than the last service. That's good. All right. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, and I say this with all sincerity, uh, there's one that is in one of the seats that's in front of you, underneath the seat. That's our gift to you. You can have that. You can grab it today, turn to Luke 1, and be ready to underline and mark things up um, and take that with you uh, when you leave today. We want you to have that. Um, while you're turning there, a couple things. There have been some people, um, and as the services have been pretty full, preemptively have gone to the overflow, and they've just sat there before ever coming in here just uh, to make sure they're sacrificing so we have room for others, and I just want to say thank you to them. Thank you if you're doing that, and uh, we appreciate it. Um, and as we do get started today, I want to pray just for God's blessing, and we will jump into Luke 1 this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here today. What a comfort it is to know that you're with us, that you're here, and that you care about each and every person that's here. And so, Father, we come, and we humbly come before you, and we want to seek you and to learn from you as we worship through song. We open your word. We take communion. We want to shine the spotlight on Jesus. And we offer you this in his name. Amen. George Lowenstein is an um, economist and social scientist, and he teaches at Carnegie Mellon University. And I uh, came across some of his work and did a little bit more research into his work. And uh, he's published in a, a variety of different different um, areas, but in the Harvard Business Review back in 1994, he um, coined a theory that he called the information gap theory. And essentially what it means is this, that people become curious upon realizing that they lack a desired knowledge. So when you know something, and you come to understand it, but not fully, and you have this curiosity, it's almost like an itch that needs to be scratched, where you're like, I have to know more about this. Uh, there's this desire. In other words, we were created with a curiosity in us to want to know fully. That's why when a mystery is not solved, it can drive us a little bit nuts. And when a problem hasn't been given a resolution, we want to know the resolution. We want to know more. Well, to illustrate this theory, uh, a lot of social scientists will use this illustration. Let me grab these. They'll take three boxes and they'll get a study group together. And they'll perform this experiment with them. They'll have three boxes, and so we're just going to play along and do this, all right? If out of the generosity of my heart, I was to offer you what they offer people. In all three boxes, you have uh, a lot of similarities here. Uh, they're roughly the same size, okay? And inside each one is a gift valued at $10,000, so you can't go wrong, Okay? So there's not actually one. What kind of church, right? Like <laughs> sermon illustrations don't cost that much, okay? But in the experiment, let's say $10,000. So in each one of the boxes, you know you can't go wrong. And so you can look inside one and you see something valued at $10,000. You go to the next box. You look inside of it because there's no top to it. And it's valued at $10,000. And you know for certain that the gift-wrapped box has something in it worth $10,000. You're not going to lose and so you're given 10 minutes to think about which one you're going to choose. And so you come and you observe and you look and you can look at the box that's open. You can pick up the gift-wrapped box, shake it around, try to figure out what it is that's inside. And then after 10 minutes, you're told to choose. You get to choose one box. 
And what they found is over 95% of people choose the gift-wrapped box because they're curious. Regardless of what they know to be in the other boxes, they have found, I am drawn. I, well, if I pick that box, will you let me at least unwrap that one and see what I missed out on? And the answer is no. You have to let it go completely, never knowing what was in that box. And most people can't do it. So they choose the gift-wrapped box because of their curiosity. Oftentimes, our curiosity overpowers our knowledge of a situation. We are wired to want to know how things work, how they finish, and what is going to come of it. This is why you can sit in a movie theater, and you've paid to be there, and the movie's horrible. And you're like, 15 minutes in, you're like, this is like, I don't want to be here. But you don't leave. Why? Because you're like, maybe. Maybe they're going to do something in this movie that just like radically changes the story, and I'm going to miss it, so I want to stay. Right? I want to know what's going to happen. Or you're reading a book, and you're like, I've read this author. I love this. This happened to me two weeks ago. I, I like to read a, a certain author with fiction, and I'm reading this book, and I'm like, this is not like as good. I'm done. And I'm not one that needs to know, but a lot of people will, let me get to the end. Did he resolve any of this? And like, you can't put the book down, and you can't walk out of the theater. Why? Because of this information gap theory. We are curious people that want to know how things work. And that's not always a bad thing. Jesus understood this. When you study the life of Jesus, he understood that we were wired this way. And so he appeals to it often. This past year, we studied the Gospel of John for the whole year. And we started the very first Sunday in 2023, and we finished three and a half weeks ago, and, uh, or four weeks ago, and we began this family tree series that we're finishing today. But if you remember way back in John chapter 4, Jesus has this really interesting encounter. He comes to this town known as Samaria. It's a town that Jewish people would not have been welcome in, nor would they have wanted to be there. And yet he and his disciples travel through Samaria. They come to this well. Jesus sends his disciples, right, to go. And uh, when they go, um, he is alone with this woman at this well. And a woman shows up. And it's an interesting encounter because a Jewish man would never engage with a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. And yet Jesus appeals to her curiosity and he asks this question. Would you get me a drink? Would you get me a drink? And instantly, her alarms are going off in her head. Like, you're not supposed to talk to me. You're definitely not supposed to talk to me because you're a rabbi. That's not supposed to happen. But she wants to know, what in the world? Why would you do that? And so it's drawn in. There's this gift-wrapped package, if you will. And she wants to know, what is this about? Why is this guy talking to me? And as the conversation goes, Jesus continues to appeal to her curiosity to bring her further and further into the conversation. And at one point, he even says to her, if you had known who it was that was asking you for a drink and that he could offer you a gift from God, the gift of living water, then you would ask me for a drink instead of me asking you. And she's like, what is this living water? And she's drawn even, even more. And through their dialogue, her entire life changes. She leaves that well a completely different person because she encountered the living God who appealed to her curiosity because she wanted to know more. And you see this in our life all the time. It's how we're wired. I talked to a guy last week in the lobby. His name's Tom. He's sitting right over there. And he told me, um, he said he doesn't worry about hiding presents from the kids all the time. Why? And I said, why is that? He said, because it only takes finding the present one time to ruin Christmas. And you'll never do it again. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I found presents as a kid one time, and then had to open the presents that I already knew I was getting, and it stole all of the mystery from Christmas, right? You've experienced, you understand that. This is how we're wired. And I think as you study the scriptures, you begin to see this. And so to show how this works and to learn that as we uncover more and more of this mystery, 
we come to realize God's always working. He's always doing something. He's always appealing to this curiosity and walking us through this and teaching us. So regardless of the kind of year you've had, if you've gone through a year that's just been extremely difficult, if you've gone through a year that was the best year you've ever had and everything fell into place just the way it was supposed to, one of the things you learn if you lean in is that God is always at work. And to illustrate this, we're going to look at the Christmas story. We're in this series, The Family Tree. That's why this isn't a Christmas tree, okay? And we're looking at the family line of Jesus. And particularly, we've been looking at the women in the line of Jesus and the difference that they made in preserving the line of the Messiah. So today we're going to look at the Christmas story on Christmas Eve, but we're going to look at it from the perspective of the mother of Jesus, Mary. And what we're going to see is that God has a gift for us. He's got a gift that he wants to give to the world, but before he gives that gift, he draws us in with some curiosity. There are some elements to the Christmas story that would have just jumped off the page as how in the world is this going to work to the first century world. So we're going to take a look at that in Luke chapter 1. If you would stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. If you're new to our church, if this is your first Sunday with us, I would tell you uh, when we do this, we do this from time to time pretty consistently. We stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of respect. So Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. There's our family tree. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is God's word. You can be seated. So again, there's a few things that jump off the page that God uses in this story. The way that he moves and the way that he accomplishes his purposes that are going to make you like, what in the world? Why would you do it that way, God? And right away in verse 26, you see that with the phrase, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So there's a woman named Elizabeth. We learn further down in the passage that she is older, beyond childbearing age, and she is now pregnant. Not just pregnant, she is six months pregnant six months pregnant. And this appeals to Mary because she knows that Elizabeth has wanted to be a mom and hasn't been able to. And now she's pregnant at an age that makes no sense at all. And immediately you're thinking, what in the world? How is this story going to play out? This is the gift wrapped box, if you will, where it's like, I got to unwrap this a little more. I'm curious, God, what are you doing? How are you going to bring about your purposes? Which he would the child she's pregnant with would be John, John the Baptist, whose purpose in life would be to prepare the way for the Messiah. Not only that, verse 26, you read another thing that would jump off the page is just being different. And it's the geography associated with this story. It says that the angel Gabriel visited Mary in Nazareth. 
Why would the angel Gabriel come to the town that most historians don't even put on the map? It's so insignificant. This tiny little nothing of a town. There's a collection of writings. It's a historical writings called the Hebrew Talmud. What it is is a collection of rabbis' writings and thoughts, thousands of them, that essentially is teaching you this. It wants to teach you how to take the Old Testament and apply it to your life. And you can read this historical document, and in it, uh, it is referenced the region of Galilee, where this tiny town of Nazareth was located, this whole region. There are 63 different towns and villages that you read about in the Talmud, and not one time is Nazareth mentioned. Not a single time. Because it was in, it's just insignificant. It didn't matter. Nobody cared about this town. So why even put it on the map? Fast forward a little bit, and Josephus, the first century Jewish historian who gives us a lot of context to the world around us during the writing of the scriptures, he references 45 different towns and villages in the region of Galilee, and not one time does he mention the town of Nazareth. Because once again, this is just an insignificant town. Within five miles of Nazareth, you have towns whose population was around 30,000. Nightlife, uh, markets that you could go to, activities for the family, really incredible cities. And five miles from these big cities, you have this little podunk town called Nazareth. The population, when we study history, was anywhere between 100 and 400. Nothing to do in that town, no stoplight. You just breeze right through it. You're not, you're not even going to know you were in Nazareth by the time you're out of Nazareth. The kids that grow up there go to, town in a, go to school in a town next door. They don't even go to school in town there. This is a completely insignificant, irrelevant town. And you read, wait a second. This is where the angel Gabriel visited this person? Like, why would he pick Nazareth? This makes sense now when you read in your scriptures. What good could possibly come from Nazareth? Not much, according to history. But then you read in verse 27 that it was the angel Gabriel who comes to this little nothing town to visit this poor girl named Mary, and the virgin's name was Mary. Well, why would that jump off the page at you? Well, in the first century Jewish world, 50% of women were named Mary. So you're like, that's, okay, cool. Someone's named Mary. There's Marys everywhere. John chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross. You meet, you read about Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary the wife of Clopas. You meet Mary, 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 Mary. Mary's everywhere in the Bible and everywhere in history. It's this just common name. But again, you're drawn in because as common as the name Mary was, there's something about this little poor girl that stands out. She's different. She's not like every other person. You see, most of our impressions of Mary come from like the plays and the movies that you've seen, right, of the nativity, if you will. Maybe you've been to a live nativity. Anybody ever like driven through one or walked through one? And it always culminates in a barn of some sort, okay? I'm not knocking live nativities, so don't email me, okay? But it always ends up in a barn, and you have somebody dressed up really sad, and they're just sitting there, and it's Mary and Joseph holding the baby, and she doesn't make eye contact, and she's really, really timid, and she doesn't, she's not, doesn't have much of an opinion, nothing to say. She just kind of sits back, and you're like, okay, that's our impression of who Mary was. The problem with that is the Bible, okay? <laughs> because the Bible doesn't describe her that way. We don't get a lot about her, but you learn quite a bit from the context that she was anything but timid, anything but shy. History tells us that Mary, that the typical age for a girl in her area, and times have changed, to get engaged and become a mom was anywhere from the age of 12 to 14. So it was when she would have been engaged. So this Mary is 12 to 14 years old. 
when her entire life begins to change. She's in that awkward stage where she's learning physics. I have a 14-year-old daughter. Like, okay, enough said, okay? Like, you're learning quite a bit about how the world works. Your brain is changing. Your body is changing. You're learning what it means to not be so childish, or at least you should be learning that, and acting more mature and more like an adult. You're learning all of these things. And it's in that phase where her whole life is changing. Everything is different. She's grabbing onto the world around her that God shows up and says, I'm putting this unbelievably big responsibility on your shoulders. For nine months, the Messiah is going to live in your womb. That is the very womb where the Messiah's body would be knit together. It would be her blood that would carry nutrients to his body. It would be her voice, as moms do, that would sing and soothe that growing child in the womb. When he was restless, she would speak and talk to him to calm him down in the womb. For nine months, divinity would live inside of her. And you're reading this and you're thinking, really? She's so young. Is she really ready for this? Is she really ready for that responsibility to be laid on her? God noticed something that we oftentimes miss in our reading of the text, that she was, in fact, not timid. She was bold and courageous, tenacious even. Okay, well, how do you know that? Well, let me give you an example. As soon as our text ends, it says the angel left her. Mary goes on a journey, and she's going to go visit Elizabeth, that older woman who was her relative, who was six months pregnant because it didn't seem to make sense. And so she's going to set out on this journey by herself. When you study this, here's what you learn, that the distance between where Mary lived and where Elizabeth lived was 70 miles, but not just 70 miles. It was 70 miles over a rough, rugged terrain with all kinds of threats being posed against her. Remember, 12 to 14 years old, and she does this journey on her own. It would have taken her 10 days to journey to Elizabeth's home, and in those 10 days, she would have set up camp every night on her own, and here's what you notice. Her mom and dad don't stop her. The angel never told her she had to do it. The angel never says, go see Elizabeth. He he doesn't say that. This was her decision. She chose to do it, and her parents let her go. Again, I've got a 14-year-old daughter, and there is no way, no way she would be going on a trip like this. And yet there's something about Mary, and the context is important, that her parents know she's strong enough for this. She's up for this challenge, and so they let her go. See, she wasn't this timid little passive girl. She was tenacious and bold and courageous. She was intelligent, too. You can read the song that she sings when she gets to Elizabeth's home, a song of praise to God. This is a girl who didn't go to formal school, and yet there are 11 different books in your Old Testament referenced in that song. God's word was hidden deep on her heart so that she was ready for these type of moments. But it wasn't easy for her. She wrestles with some of this. She, like, has a big challenge with it, right? And she begins to question why and how these things are happening. You kind of read about it, but what was it that was getting to her that was difficult? Well, she asks, well, how can this be? How can this happen to me? I'm a virgin. She's wrestling with it. So she's seeking something. Here's what's important. Verse 28 tells us, and our Catholic friends will oftentimes, I think, misinterpret this. I'm saying that gently, but they will oftentimes say that, you, you would ask Mary, you would pray to Mary with something, Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of, the womb, of your womb. Meaning, somehow she's full of grace and able to give it. But the Bible doesn't say that, and we know that because of this passage. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible actually teaches that Mary is not the source of grace and therefore should never be prayed to. She's a recipient of grace in this moment. God gives her grace that she needs to carry out the assignment that God has given to her to carry 
this child full term to give birth to the Messiah. And so you can see that in her difficulty there in verse 29. In verse 29, she, it says that she pondered or wondered or tried to discern what the angel was telling her. What is it that you're telling me? This is unbelievable. Because here's something that she's like, hey, I hear you, and I think it makes sense, but it doesn't work. The math doesn't math. How is this going to happen? I'm not a virgin. How will this possibly take place? And they go back and forth. They have this conversation, and it ends down there in verse 34, where she says, how can it be? So she has doubts. She's wrestling with this, and here's what you learn from this. There are two different types of doubts that we wrestle with. There are those, and again, you call them what you want. Use the the language you want to use. I call them respectful and disrespectful or uh, hardworking doubts and lazy doubts. A lazy doubt would be this. It would be the evidence is presented to you. So maybe you're someone who doesn't believe in God, and it's like, hey, here, let's explore that. Let's understand why don't you believe. And a lazy doubt would say, I'm not sure that God exists, and I don't want to know, so I don't want to talk about it. Don't talk to me about it. I don't want to have conversation. I don't want you to ask me questions. I don't want to engage at all. And deep down, a lot of it is maybe rooted in the fact that if God is, in fact, real, it would require that you make some drastic changes to your life, and I don't want to do that. Or it could be some church hurt, or it could be some family hurt that has led you to be lazy with your doubting, meaning because I have a doubt, I don't have to do anything about it. I just refuse to talk. Then you have more of a hardworking doubt, which is what you see in Mary here. How in the world could you possibly accomplish this, God? I'm curious. And it's the curiosity I have with this wrapped gift, if you will. I want to know how you're going to accomplish this. And so she asks questions and she begins to engage. She wants to know, hey, I'm in, but you got to tell me a little bit. How does this work? I want to know more. She's continuing to be curious. Here's what I find fascinating about that. She stayed curious. Up until this point, Mary's life in Nazareth was pretty easy. It was a pretty easy life. It was, it was not hard at all. Um, She grew up in this town. She knew these people. But from the moment this angel visits her and when this angel leaves, her life gets drastically different. Think about this. When they're going to have the baby, Joseph and Mary need to take off and go to Bethlehem. That's a 90-mile trip. Remember how long it took in the 70-mile trip and the terrain. they got to make a 90-mile trip to Bethlehem where she's going to give birth to her first son. And her husband, Joseph, she doesn't have a hospital. She doesn't have a hospital staff. Her husband, Joseph, has to play the role of the midwife. And I'm telling you right now, he wasn't ready. How do I know that? He wasn't ready, okay? None of us are. None of us. Ladies, I want to tell you, I don't care how many classes you send us to, how many books you have us read, how many YouTube videos, how much instruction and testimony other people give us. None of us are ready for that moment, all right? I remember standing there when my kids were being born and the nurse boldly looking at me and saying, sit down right now because I'm not going to pick you up. I'm like... All right, because I was getting lightheaded, all right? He wasn't ready, okay? We're not ready, but they had to endure that. Then all of a sudden, these shepherds, which were lowly people in that class, they weren't respected at all. They were kind of grimy, difficult people to be around. And the shepherds show up, and they start saying, we had dreams. We had this angel visit us, and the angel came to us and told us to come. And now you're like, wait a second, shepherds with... Okay, the angel part, I believe, because I just had a visit too, but this is kind of crazy. Then two years later, they have these... Foreigners from Persia come, the Magi, and they come and bring gifts. I want you to take note, two years later, they shouldn't be in the play, all right? (laughs) It's two years later that the Magi show up with the gifts. So now she's like, I never thought I'd meet someone from this part of the world, and now they're bringing me presents. This is a little bit overwhelming. Then they have to up 
everything that they've known now, and they have to move to Egypt for two years to escape being killed. And so they moved to Egypt, and she's like, I'm from nowhere, nothing, Nazareth. What am I doing living in Egypt? I never thought that I would possibly live in Egypt. And finally, after two years, they get to move back to Bethlehem. And she begins to say to herself, you know what? Maybe we're going to have a little bit of a normal life now. Crazy, not normal like everybody else. I gave birth to the Savior, but maybe a little bit of a normal family rhythm. And a little bit into that tenure, Joseph dies and leaves her as a widow. So now she's a widow. She wasn't expecting that either. Some years after Joseph dies, Jesus leaves the home and starts his public ministry. No longer doing his work as a carpenter, he leaves his home. Three years after that, she finds herself at the foot of the cross watching her son die a death he did not deserve to die. And you got to think she stepped back and said, is this really how it was supposed to work? Is that what I unwrapped? Is this how this was supposed to play out? He's dying for the sins of everybody else, and yet he's not sinned. And what does she do? She leans in. Because that's what she did over and over and over again. She leaned in. She said, I don't understand how this is working. I don't understand why this is happening. I can't even fully wrap my mind around the pain and the agony that I'm feeling in this season of my life right now. But God, I believe you're working, and I want to know more. I want to know what you're going to do next. I don't know how you're going to use this, but you've used everything else, so I think you can use this pain too. So she leans in. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. Forty days later, he ascends back to the Father. Fifty days later, she finds herself in an upper room with 120 of her friends waiting on the coming of the Holy Spirit, which what was that? She didn't understand what that was going to mean, and yet then the Holy Spirit comes, and she watches on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people get baptized into Christ. And the kingdom of God begins to progress because she continued to lean in. She got to be a part of that and see that happen. And this is the difference that it makes. And she has this unbelievable prayer. As we get ready, we're going to close out and take communion here in just a few minutes. It's fascinating to me as I've reflected on this. And I don't know about you, but when I get to Christmas, I begin that reflection on the year. Maybe you do that too. You begin to think about the whole year and kind of, man, Christmas felt like it was yesterday. And yet it's actually tomorrow again. And here we go. And what a year it's been. Luke chapter 1 starts with this really small part of the story. This little peasant girl in this little nothing town. And yet God moves powerfully in her story and you get to learn, man, how did she continue to stay curious? Well, she had this prayer that she prays there in verse 38. And she says, I don't know how this works, why it works, or what's going to happen next, but God, may it be to me according to your word. Because she prayed that prayer and leaned in, her world changed forever and so did ours. May it be to me according to your word. And I think, what would it look like if we prayed that prayer? 2023 has been a different kind of year for me, personally. If you're new around here, um, my father-in-law has been on staff with us since 1988. Okay? He's been here at New Hope since 1988. He was a senior minister for many, many years. I became that, uh, into that role in 2016, and he stayed on staff full-time. But this year, uh, he got really sick, and we, we thought we were saying goodbye. And uh, that was really, really hard. Because that's my hero. And I wrestled with these emotions and these thoughts and these feelings. And I kept thinking, how am I going to be a pastor? I'm not ready to be a pastor without my pastor. And then this past Wednesday, our church did lose somebody. David was healed. and He's doing well. He preached last week. You'll hear him again in a couple weeks as well. 
But this past Wednesday night, we had a giant in the faith of this congregation named Richard Mott who passed away. And for 15 years, Richard's been a mentor to me. He's invested a lot in my life. And he passed away on Wednesday. And as I'm reflecting on him passing away and everything we went through, and, and maybe you're doing the same thing with what you've been through in your life, and the Gospel of John, and the family tree of Jesus, and I'm sitting back, and this theme just keeps coming to my mind, that regardless of what we go through, whether it's pain and agony or joy and success, whether you're making a mess of your life with your decisions or you're walking through a mess in your life right now that wasn't your fault, God is always working. Richard had this phrase. If you knew him, you've heard this phrase. If you spent any time with him, it didn't take long for you to hear it. He said, nothing befalls me that has not first passed through his hands. And I asked him one time, Richard, what do you, like, what do you mean when you say that? I think I'm following you. And he said, I don't know what's going to happen next. And I don't know where this leads. I don't know what's going to happen to me. But I know I can trust God with it. Because nothing surprises him. That sounds a lot like Mary's prayer. May it be to me according to your word. So my prayer for you this Christmas, as you reflect on a year, another year of life, and you look forward to the next year, that you would echo the prayers of Richard and Mary and all the believers and saints that came before us. May it be to me according to your word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything. (laughs) Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for living the life we couldn't live and dying the death we deserve to die. Thank you for defeating death. Thank you for going to prepare a place for us. Thank you for never leaving us. Thank you for hope. And thank you that no matter what happens to us, we know that we can trust you to bring good from it. So may we lean in and stay curious and look for the ways that you're moving and working in our lives. We will trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.